0: So we've been in Acts for uh, 20 weeks now, and have you guys learned anything from about the book of Acts, yeah. about the history of our movement? I hope that you've gleaned a lot from it and you have a better understanding about some of the basic tenets of our faith, um, how, how the different apostles and the writers of the New Testament view different things and different fundamentals of our faith. I've learned a lot. I have, I mean, even if you guys didn't learn anything, I have learned a ton studying to teach for this, this, um, this, this series that we've been going through in the book of Acts. And uh, this is, we find ourselves in Acts chapter 20, which puts us in about 52 AD, 52 AD. So when did the crucifixion, resurrection happen? In the 30s. We don't know exactly, but in the 30s, the 33 era, in that era. So we're almost 20 years post the death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua of Nazareth, okay? 20 years later. It's a pretty good good span of time, isn't it? Um, This is about the time when Paul likely wrote the book of Romans to the believers in Rome. Although he has yet to actually travel to Rome, this is the, the period where he's going to be writing it. And it says in verse one, after the furor died down, the that they're talking about the, the riots that were happening in the prior chapter. Remember in the city of Ephesus, Paul spends about three, no, two years and three months in the city of Ephesus that he's there. Remember this guy Demetrius rises up and he's like, wait, this man is speaking against our trade and we're going to lose all of our economic stability, and he's going to undermine our industry as silversmiths. Oh, and by the way, he's going to make the goddess of Artemis low, right? Remember that? And so there was about two hours in the, the uh, arena there, the big, the big theater. They were shouting, great is the god of Artemis, the, of the Ephesians. For two hours, they were shouting him down, shouting down the believers there. And uh, it got broken up. And, uh, and they, kind of, they kind of disbanded at that point. But it says, after all that died down, Saul... He sent for the disciples and encouraged them. Then he took his leave and he set out on his way to Macedonia. He went through that area and after saying much to encourage them, he passed on to Greece where he spent three months. And here we think is where he writes the book of Romans. As he was preparing to set sail for Syria, he discovered a plot against him by the unbelieving Jews. So he changed his mind and he decided to return by way of Macedonia. Sopater from Berea, the son of Phyrus, accompanied him, as did Aristarchus, and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy, and Tychius, and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went out and waited for us in Troas. So here Luke is a part of this. Luke is writing himself into this as a participant of this journey. While we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, adzumos in the Greek, so it's interesting, we find ourselves in Acts 20, about the same time they find themselves on the biblical calendar. We're right after the Days of Unleavened Bread. Here they are right after the Days of Unleavened Bread. It says, five days later, we met them in Troas, where we spent a week. And on the Mi'a Ton Sabaton, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered to break artos, bread, Shaul addressed them. Now here, don't get hung up on the fact that I said sabbaton right there. Okay, That's not saying on the Sabbath they met. It's saying on the first of the week. Okay, um, Some people, some even Messianic teachers, they uh, unknowingly teach that this is on the sabbaton. Therefore, it's on the Sabbath. That's not true. This is on the first of the week. The, the Greek word that Luke is using there, he also uses in Luke 18.12 when he says that the Pharisees, they fast twice a sabbatone, twice a week. It's just a way of saying, it's a, it's a way of saying a group of seven a week, okay? So don't get hung up on that. It can mean Sabbath sometimes, but it can also be used interchangeably for the concept of a week, all right? But I want you guys to make sure you're teaching good, sound, biblical stuff. Um, it, but here's, here's what I don't want you to get from this, and this is what most biblical teachers and, and scholars and theologians will read this verse and say, Ah, here it is. The early believers are beginning to meet on the first day of the week. See, we see the beginning inception of that where they're calling Sunday the Sabbath and it's like the Lord's Day and they're meeting and doing church on Sunday and slowly deserting the seventh-day Sabbath. No, that's not what's going on here either, okay? It's not a Sabbath, all right? Here is what I, Gabe Rutledge, believed when they're meeting. They're meeting Saturday at sundown. They're meeting on a Saturday evening. Okay, they've had a full day at the synagogue, they've been saying the prayers, they've been studying the Torah, they've been midrashing together as a local assembly, and then they meet at sundown, they come together to break bread, likely there's some cooking involved, and that's why they're waiting until after sundown, and then Shaul, Shaul addresses them, since he was going to leave the next day, Do you catch that? In the morning, he's going to leave. So he kept talking until midnight. See, doesn't that make a lot more sense? if they're meeting at Saturday at sundown, the close of the Sabbath, and he's talking till midnight, okay? So you can picture maybe starting around seven or so, and then he's talking till midnight. That's way more conceivable than they're meeting on a Sunday morning at 10.30 for Sunday morning worship, and he talks until midnight, all right? It's possible, but that's not very likely. So he talks until midnight. Now, there were many oil lamps burning in the upstairs room where they were meeting, and there was a young fellow named Eutychus, sitting on the windowsill. And as Paul was giving his sermon, as he was speaking, went on and on. Eutychus drew sleepier and sleepier until finally he went sound asleep and fell from the third story to the ground. And when they picked him up, he was dead. I've heard some people teach that he wasn't fully dead and that wasn't a resurrection, but he was dead. Verse 10, but Paul went down. He threw himself onto him. So he's touching a dead body here. Do you see that? This is going to play... Uh, play out in the next chapter uh, next week when he's going up to the temple uh, he's got to do some things before he can approach the temple and you'll see that but here he's laying himself over a dead body he's he's contaminating himself with a dead body but Saul saw threw himself onto him he put his arms around him and said don't be upset he is alive then he went back upstairs he broke bread and he ate he continued talking with him until daylight then left so here we see this interesting parallel between the resurrection of Yeshua, which happened early in the first of the week before sunrise on the first day of the week and this young man being resurrected early as the week is dawning as well. So greatly the relieved, they brought the boy home alive. Verse 13, we went on ahead. See, Luke is here. We went on ahead to the ship and set sail for Assos where we were planning to take Saul aboard. He had arranged this because he wanted to go there by land. After he met us in Assos, we took him aboard and went to Mytilene. The next day, we sailed from there and arrived at Chios. The the following day, we crossed over to Samos. And the day after that, we reached Miletus. Now here is, uh, I don't know if you can see that very well, but right here on the western shore of the province of Asia. Verse 16. For Saul had decided to bypass Ephesus on his voyage in order to avoid losing more time in the province of Asia because he was hurrying to get to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem, if possible, in time for Shavuot or Pentecost, as your Bibles likely say. So it's interesting here, he's not going through Ephesus because there's a lot of believers there, a lot of disciples there. He knows that if he goes through Ephesus, he's gonna lose a lot of time. He's gonna have to talk to people. He's gonna have to answer questions. He's gonna have to explain things to people and visit people. He's trying to make it down, or I should say up to Jerusalem, by what holiday? Shavuot, Pentecost, which is coming up June 5th for us, Sunday, June 5th for us. So you can see how important these holidays are still to Paul, 20 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua. Why is is it such a priority to him to make it to Jerusalem? Because he's a Jewish male. And that is one of the three, what we call in Hebrew, Shalosh Regalim, the three traveling feasts, is how you could translate that, the pilgrimage feast. When it says in the Torah that every Jewish male must present themselves in the place where he sets his name, or the temple, in Jerusalem. So he's being obedient to that. He's doing his best effort to go up to Jerusalem in time to celebrate Shavuot. But keep in mind, though, it's not that black or white. Because where was Paul during Passover, which is another pilgrimage feast? He's probably in Asia. <laughs> he didn't make it to Jerusalem for Passover, although it is one of the pilgrimage feasts. Maybe, maybe. But I, I think I think he, he if what if able he made every effort to go up to Jerusalem for these pilgrimage feasts. But he's trying to get there for Shavuot. You know, he got in a little bit of trouble here and there, and. Maybe he got delayed too much and he couldn't make it. Verse 17, but he did send from Miletus to Ephesus. Remember, he's going around Ephesus, but he's summoning the Presbyteros, the the elders of the Ecclesia from, from Ephesus. And when they arrived, he said to them, you yourselves know. How? From the first day I set foot in the province of Asia, I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with much humility and with tears in spite of the test I had to undergo because of the plots of the unbelieving Jews. You know that I held nothing back that could be helpful to you and that I taught you both in public and from house to house, declaring with the utmost seriousness the same message to Jews and to Greeks alike. We should do the same thing. doesn't matter your race or ethnicity. The same message is how we roll here. Turn from sin to God and put your trust in the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. Now, let me pause here and just say and thank you all and brag on you all. Do you remember Virgil who was visiting? Yeah, he came up to me uh, last Saturday and he just spoke so highly of everyone here. And he said, man, I've been to a lot of different congregations, messianic congregations. And this one, it's like you guys were just immediate family to me. And everyone made it a point to come up to me and talk to me. And the Whitakers especially were just so hospitable to me. And I just really appreciate you guys. I just wanted to let you, let you know that. This is one of the friendliest places I've ever been. So that just really brought you know, warm and fuzzies to my heart. So thank you guys for being who you are and doing such a wonderful job of, of welcoming Virgil and, and being kind to him. But it says now in verse 22, Compelled by the what? The Spirit. So two things here. Paul is not going to Jerusalem on his own volition. He's being compelled by the Spirit to do it. If the Spirit is telling him to do it, it's likely not a mistake, it's part of God's plan. Another thing, speaks to the personhood of the Holy Spirit, does it not? The Spirit is compelling Paul to do something. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I don't know what will happen to me there, other than that in every city the Holy Spirit keeps warning me. Do you hear the personhood being assigned to the Holy Spirit? that imprisonment and persecution awaits me, but I consider my own life of no importance to me whatsoever, as long as I can finish the course ahead of me, the task I receive from the Lord Yeshua, to declare in depth the good news of God's love and kindness. Now listen, I know that none of you people among whom I have gone out proclaim the, the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I testify on this day, did I am innocent of all blood. Wait, is he innocent of all blood? Through Yeshua he is, perhaps. Has, is Paul guilty of murder and assassination? And persecution of innocent men, women, and children? Absolutely he is. So how can he say that he's guilty of all blood here? Well, the key is to go to Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel 33, if you know where that is in your Bible, turn there real quick, Ezekiel 33. He is inciting Ezekiel 33 in verse 7. Ezekiel 33 verse 7. I knew I was going there, so I put a bookmark there. You guys should do that too. Just kidding. Ezekiel 33, 7 says, Likewise, you, son of man, I have appointed you as the watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, when you hear the word from my mouth, warn the people for me. When I tell the wicked person, wicked person, you will certainly die, and you fail to speak and warn the wicked person to leave his way, then that wicked person will die guilty, and I will hold you responsible, and I will hold you responsible for his death. On the other hand, if you warn the wicked person to turn from his way and he doesn't turn from his way, then he will still die guilty but you have saved your own life. Do you see what happens there? So in other words, you warn the wicked person and he doesn't repent. His blood is on his head. Catch that? He's in, you are innocent of his blood. But if you know the wicked person, you don't warn, warn the wicked person the coming judgment. His blood is on you. So let's go back to Acts now. Let's go back to Acts. You see what he says here in verse 25. Now listen. I know that none of you people among whom I have gone out proclaiming the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I testify on this day that I am innocent of all the blood, of all blood. For I did not shrink from proclaiming to you the whole plan of God. You see what he's doing there? Okay, is he innocent of all blood? Absolutely, he is. Verse 28, he says, watch out for yourselves. For all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has placed you as episcopos or overseers to shepherd God's ecclesia, which he won for himself at the cost of his own son's blood. I know, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you, and they won't spare the flock. Even from among your own number, men will rise. And they will speak diastrepho, which is, diastrepho is like the Hebrew equivalent of the diastrepho. It's used in Genesis 19, when God overthrows Sodom and Gomorrah, those two cities. You catch that? So the equivalent of what Paul is saying there is the idea of overthrowing or, or completely ruining something. Laying it bare, just flattening it. He's saying that men will rise and they will overthrow the truth. They will destroy the truth in order to drag away disciples after themselves. A really wise mentor of mine once told me this. How do you tell the difference As someone comes into your congregation? How do you tell the difference between a, a sheep and a wolf? Because as a shepherd, you're supposed to watch for wolves and shoo them out, right? Show them the door. <laughs> how do you know the difference between a sheep and a wolf? One thing, their diet. Their diet. Okay, a wolf will try to lead people out. They they will consume sheep. They will they will add confusion. They will they will create doubt, and they will try to lead people out for themselves. Whereas a sheep, yeah, they can be ornery. They can be thick-headed sometimes, right? They can kick you. They can gnaw at you. They can bite, right? And they wander off. But the difference is, they're not trying to lead other people astray, and to with the, the the intent to devour them out in the outskirts of the camp. So that's what Paul is saying here. They'll lead Talmudim, disciples after themselves. Now, why would a wolf do that? What is the motive of a wolf to lead people after for themselves, do you think? What? To eat them, yeah. Anything else? I mean, that's a figurative thing. That means what? To build up their own pride. To build up their own own pride. Yeah, we call that like glory, right? Self-glorification. Lead them astray. astray. Yeah. There's not many wolves that come in. The bad guy doesn't always believe he's the bad guy, right? Not many wolves come in saying, you know what? I'm going to take Bob and I'm going to just destroy his faith. (laughs) Not many wolves will do that. But many wolves will come in and say, Bob, hey, have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about that? Wait, you still believe in this? Right. Hey, come with me. I want to come over to my house and I want to share some more of this with you. Right. I want to lead you. Oh, and by the way, you know, some of the things that they're saying at the congregation. I have you ever looked into it? Look at this. Right. Do Do you think they're really qualified to be doing that? Right. And he starts to plant seeds of doubt and insurrection into Bob's mind. Hey, come with me. I know better and I believe better. I'm smarter and then eventually brings them into that atmosphere, away from a healthy environment of families that can support Bob and Brenda, that can encourage them, that can love them, right? And eventually just kind of leaves them out high and dry and makes them question their own fate. So I saw two hands up, i got some questions. Suzanne. I just wanted to say that the saying, a wolf in sweet clothing, what I'm speaking to is that the wolf oftentimes doesn't look like the wolf not. You have to examine their fruit. You have to examine what, what their behavior is and what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. A wolf rarely looks like a wolf, I would say. But Patrick, did you have a question? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I just sort of saying that but pay attention to the fruit or the watch thereof. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, we will know them by their fruit. Yeah, it's really important. So Bob, sorry I'm picking on you today. I don't think you would follow the wolf out. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Brent, as wow, well. I heard that. Did you feel that bus hit you? I got a wolf killer here beside me. So, so let's pick up, we're at verse uh, 31. Paul says, stay alert. Remember that for three years, night and day, with tears in my eyes, I never stopped warning you. Now guys, what is the best preventative measure for the wolf that comes in? What is the best preventative measure? Sound dog. Sound doctrine. How do you get sound doctrine? Study the word. Studying the word. Being familiar with the word. All right? Just like I told you, hey, guys, don't get hung up on the Sabbath tone thing, okay? There are teachers that will say that they're meeting on the Sabbath, the seven-day Sabbath. It's not true. I, I tested it. I did all that. They're, you know, test, test things. And I'd like to take one Saturday and teach you guys how I study the Bible sometimes and how some of the software I use and yeah. look at the original language and all that. That'd be really good. So I want to equip you to be able to do that yourselves. Um, and also be able to test what I teach to be true as well. But um, who does this remind us of? Remember back in Numbers chapter 22, who was the character that came on the scene? Against, Aaron? Against well, not Korah. Who was yeah. the guy? Balaam, or Balaam, remember him? Yeah. He was the prophet for hire, who was hired by the king, remember him? And he was supposed to come and pronounce curses over Israel. And remember, he couldn't do it, and then eventually he joins the camp of Israel. He goes in among them, and then eventually leads a rebellion from within the camp of Israel. Remember that? Remember that story? That's what this reminds me of. Now, what was ultimately at the heart of Balaam's motives was gold and silver, right? He was like the patron saint of of, of spiritual greed (laughs) and pride. In verse 32... Paul says, and now I entrust you to the care of the Lord and to the message of his love and kindness. For it can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who have been set apart for God. In other words, Paul's like, I'm trusting you guys to do a good job. I've spent three years with you. I've taught you. I've trained you. I can no longer micromanage anything that goes on among you. I just have to hope that the Holy Spirit will guide you, that you're well-versed in the word, You know how to study it out. You have discernment. You can judge the fruit. This is a really good style of leadership that Paul is employing here. Um, Because sometimes we see in the church world that these pastors will have multiple campuses all around the country or in a locale. And sometimes they micromanage each of those. And they say, no, you can't teach. You have to pipe in my teaching. You have to watch it on a screen. Otherwise, I can't really trust who's up there speaking and representing our brand, okay? That's not what Paul is doing here. Paul is entrusting the elders to speak and to speak truth and to build each other up. Now, this is a really good leadership style. And there's a book my mom got me called Turn the Ship Around, a true story of turning followers into leaders. And just in the, the, um, the introduction of the book, there's a really good section here. It's written by a former Navy captain uh, who was on a, a nuclear submarine. He, ser- he says, when I served in the U.S. Navy, I had firsthand experience with an outdated leadership model. Here's what my Naval Academy leadership book told me about being a leader. Leadership is the art, science, or gift by which a person is enabled and privileged to direct the thoughts, direct the plans, and direct the actions of others in such a manner as to obtain and command their obedience, their confidence, their respect, and their loyal cooperation. Sounds good, right? In other words, he says, leadership in the Navy and in most organizations is about controlling people. It divides the world into two groups of people, leaders and followers. Most of what we study, learn, and practice in terms of leadership today follows this leader-follower structure. This model has been with us for a long time. It's pervasive. It permeates some of the most popular novels and movies about leadership, such as Patrick O'Brien's Master and Commander. People can accomplish a tremendous amount through the leader-follower model, particularly with adept bosses. The widespread development of farming, the pyramids in Egypt, and the factories of the Industrial Revolution were all built using this structure. It generated tremendous wealth. Many bosses and owners got rich, and the followers were better off too. It is exactly because the leader-follower way of doing business has been so successful that it is both so appealing and so hard to give up. But this model developed during a period when mankind's primary work was physical. Consequently, it's optimized for extracting physical work from humans. In our modern world, the most important work we do is cognitive, so it's not surprising that a structure developed for physical work isn't optimal for intellectual work. People who are treated as followers have the expectation of followers and therefore act like followers. And as followers, they have limited decision-making authority and little incentive to give the utmost of their intellect their energy and their passion. And those who take orders usually run at half speed, under utilizing their imagination and their initiative. While this doesn't matter much for rowing a charim, cher- I don't know, I guess a big boat. Um, yeah, I think it's like a rowboat. While it doesn't ma- matter much for rowing a big boat, it's everything for operating a nuclear-powered submarine. This is, recognized lim- this rec- this is a recognized limitation of the leader-follower model. We're taught the solution then is empowerment. The people with the empowerment programs is that they, uh, the problem with the empowerment program is that they contain an inherent contradiction between the message and the method. While the message is empowerment, the method it takes me to empower you, fundamentally disempowers employees. That drowns out the message. Additionally, in a leader-follower structure, the performance of the organization is closely linked to the abilities of the leader. Listen close right here. As a result, there is a natural tendency to develop personality-driven leadership. Followers gravitate toward the personality. Short-term performance is then rewarded. When the leaders who tend to do it at all themselves and rely on personality depart, they are missed and performance can change significantly. Psychologically, for the leader, this is tremendously rewarding. It is seductive. Psychologically, for most followers, this is debilitating. The follower learns to rely on the leader to make all the decisions, rather than to fully engage with the work process to help make the organization run as efficiently as possible. So the leader leader structure is fundamentally different from the leader follower structure, because at its core is the belief that we can all be leaders. And in fact, it's best when we all do lead. Leadership is not some mystical quality that some possess and others do not. As humans, we all have what it takes and we all need to use our leadership abilities in every respect of our own work life. The leader-leader model not only achieves great improvements in effectiveness and morale, but also makes the organization stronger. Most critically, these improvements are enduring, decoupled from the leader's personality and presence. Leader-leader structures are significantly more resilient, and they do not rely on the designated leader always being right. Further, leader-leader structures spawn additional leaders throughout the organization naturally. And it just can't even be stopped. I love that, that excerpt from that book because Paul did that here. He went about and he appointed leaders. And he spent time and he trained those leaders. And he's like, now when I leave, you're the ones in charge. Okay, I'm going somewhere else. When I go, you guys gotta, you've got to steer the ship. You've got to do this. But be warned, wolves will come in among you, and they will ravage the flock. Now, verse 33. He said, he's speaking to the Ephesian elders. Remember that here. He says, I have not wanted for myself anyone's gold, clothing, or silver. All right, he's juxtaposing himself against our friend Bilam from Numbers chapter 22. You yourselves know that these hands Of mine, they provided not only for my own needs, but for the needs of my co-workers as well. In everything, I have given you an example of how, by working hard like this, you must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Yeshua himself, it is better to give than to receive. Now, where did Yeshua say this? We don't know. (laughs) Paul is quoting something here that is extra biblical, a saying of Yeshua that never made it into the Gospels. You know, in John uh, chapter twenty-one, he says that there was much that Yeshua did. It could fill up volumes of books that is not recorded. But this is one of those sayings. Paul is quoting one of those sayings that is actually not from the Gospels. It's probably handed down orally to, to Paul. Now I saw a hand somewhere. Oh, Michael. Yeah, these last few verses here remind me of. it's also following the pattern of Samuel when they. Hmm. Yeah, it's a good point. Thank you. So why is Paul pointing this out? Why is Paul pointing out the fact that he has not taken a dime from anyone to do this? Maybe future people have come and they want to ask for gold and wealth to show here's the leadership that I set. Yeah, Make so sure that perhaps comes behind me does the same. So when people, when leaders come and they say, Hey, I need financial help, right. that maybe that's a barometer that there may be a wolf? But the problem with that, if we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you want to turn there, 1 Corinthians 9, and it's important we understand this, 1 Corinthians 9, it can't always be a marker of them being someone of nefarious intent or a wolf. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, verse 3. He says, this is my defense when people put me under examination. Don't we have the right to be given food and drink? Don't we have the right to take along with us a believing wife, as do the other emissaries, also the Lord's brothers and Peter? Or are Barnabas and I the only ones required to go on working for our living? Did you ever hear of a soldier paying his own expenses? Or of a farmer planting a vineyard without ever eating its grapes? Who shepherds a flock without drinking some of its milk? What I am saying is not based merely on human authority because the Torah says the same thing. For in the Torah of Moses it is written, you are not to muzzle an ox while it's treading the grain. If God is concerned about the cattle, all the more does he say this for our sake. Yes, it was written for us, meaning that he who plows and he who threshes should work expecting to get a share of the crop. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is, uh, is it too much if we reap material harvest from you? If others are sharing in this right to be supported by you, don't we have a greater claim to it? But we don't make use of this right, Paul says. Rather, we put up with all kinds of things so as not to impede in any way the good news about Yeshua, the Messiah. Don't you know that those who work in the temple, they get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar get a share of the sacrifices that are offered there? In the same way, the Lord directed that those who proclaim the good news should get their living from the good news but I have not made use of any of these rights, nor am I writing now to secure them for myself, he says, for I would rather die than be deprived of my grounds for boasting. See, what what's going on there? Flip back to Acts 20 now. Paul is saying in Acts 20, verse 33, I have not wanted for myself anyone's silver, gold, or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands paid all of my needs and the needs of others. So why is Paul pointing that out? It's a point of boasting for him. (laughs) It's a way of him saying when I come under examination in the future, which I will, people can look at my track record. They can look at how much I suffered and how much I gave and how hard I worked and the wind will be taken out of their sails because I never took a dime for doing it. You catch that? So you have questions? Supposing him against Balaam. Yes. Balaam was a preacher for hire. Yes, yeah. So that's another example of that. But also, in the Tanakh, it clearly teaches that the workman is worth his wages. In other words, you're supposed to pay them and you're supposed to pay them on time. If they get that day, you pay them that day. Yeah, yeah. So um, here's what happens sometimes is we look at men in leadership, women in leadership, primarily men, and we say, you know what? Uh, they're making too much money, or they shouldn't be making money at all, or they don't work hard enough for the salary that the church is paying them. And, and that's wrong. <laughs> Paul says that that's wrong, that, that pastors and shepherds and elders, they have a right to receive a salary for what they do within reason. And Paul even compares them to being like the priesthood, in a sense. The same, the same kind of system, all right? But, conversely, how much more corruptible is a man if he's receiving money from the people who he's trying to shepherd? You got that? So what Paul is saying is like, look, I am staying so far above reproach. What I am doing is because I am so compelled by the Holy Spirit to do it that I won't even take any payment to do it, just to defend my legacy. When people falsely accuse me, they will know that I didn't take a dime for doing it. My motives were right. I want to remind you of some suffering that Paul went through, and he gives us a list in First, I'm sorry, in Second Corinthians verse eleven. But you don't have to go there. I'm going to read these real quick for you. He says, "In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews five times I received forty stripes minus one. He was flogged five times." Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I have been in the deep, like floating in the ocean, picture that, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils at sea, perils among false brothers, in weariness and in toil, and sleeplessness often, in hunger and in thirst, in fasting, in cold, and in nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes up upon me daily? My deep concern for all the churches. So just think about it. Has anyone in this room undergone any of those things for their faith? Raise your hand. I have not either. Now this is just part of the list. Because Paul writes this, around this time, around 53, 54, 55, somewhere in there. But later on, he is going to write, now Paul had a 32-year ministry, and he just listed off the first 20 years of suffering in his 32-year ministry. So we're missing 12 years of more suffering. Let me read those off to you. Someone made a list. So Paul was arrested. He's going to be arrested in Jerusalem, spoiler alert. Then Paul's going to spend two more years in prison in Jerusalem. And then he's going to take a perilous journey from Caesarea to Rome. That included another shipwreck. Then a snake bite. And then he's going to be in prison in, uh, 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 under house arrest in Rome. And the, he's going to have a three to four year period between the first and second imprisonment. And then he's going to be imprisoned in Rome a second time and then beheaded. What a life, right? 32 years of misery. And Paul says... For all that, did not take a dime. Did not take silver. I had no desire for that. Why? Now again, anybody in here ever done and experienced any of those things for their faith? I have not either. I have not either. Now, I will go to bat for Paul. And I've done this and, and said this time and time again. That I would love to have a faith like Paul and a testimony like Paul. And God forbid that someone question his witness, that question his faith. that say There are people that say that Paul just infiltrated the early way as a, as a way to lead it astray and to start this other thing that's, no, no, that's not true. Why would someone who's not gaining anything from that and teaching falsehood go through that much for the sake of just leading a group astray? He has no motivation in doing that. And it says in verse 36, When he had finished speaking, Paul knelt down with them all and prayed. They were all in tears. And as they threw their arms around his neck and kissed him farewell, what saddened them the most was his remark that they would never see him again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Your homework is to read uh, chapter 21 this week. Read it a few times. But some lessons I learned from Acts 20 were the following. This is a picture of a yellow jacket. Not just any yellow jacket, but a queen yellow jacket. Queen yellow jackets are impregnated with dozens of eggs of other yellow jackets. Anybody ever stung by a yellow jacket before? It is painful. I've been stung by all manner of insects. But yellow jackets, for some reason, are a whole other level, at least for me. I'm maybe a wimp. I don't know. But about four nights ago, some of you got a text from me and you know this story. About four nights ago, I was... Um, I was going to bed, and I was looking forward to a good night's sleep. And I, uh, you know, I turned the lights off, and um, I, I laid in my bed. And I had this like fleece blanket. It's my it's my warm weather blanket that I have. it's a it's a fleece um, camping blanket. I got at Walmart years and years ago. And it's just just light enough, you know, to make me too hot. And I love it. It's comfortable. And I just it's it's mine. I don't share a blanket with Stacy. Otherwise, just I just have my own personal blanket. Okay. So I'm wrapping myself up in this blanket like a little taco, you know, and I'm getting comfy, like a little mummy in there, and I'm kind of drifting off to sleep, and I do, I make it to a state of unconsciousness before I feel like what felt like someone shooting me in my ankle with a nail gun. And I fly out of that bed faster than, I don't know. I, I just bolt out of the room and I am yelling, Ah, something got my ankle says something ankle. And she's she jumps awake and she's freaking out. She runs out of the room as well. And we're like standing on the hallway. My in-laws are sleeping in the basement of the house and they could probably hear me screaming like a little girl. My screams were a little bit more high pitched than that. I just kinda of lowered them a little they bit. Were yeah, and they were they were sleeping downstairs, although they said they didn't hear anything, but um I'm like yelling from out in the hallway, like looking in my room and I turn the light on and my ankle is like throbbing I'm like holding it I'm like Stacy go check the bed go check the bed and she's like what was it what was it I'm like something stung me it felt like a yellow jacket but I'm like how could that happen because I'm in this spot where I feel safe and secure right like there's nothing there's no yellow jackets around here that can hurt me now if I was out mowing my lawn absolutely I will find a yellow jacket nest and they will hurt me but I'm in my bed all right I should be safe it's a place of trust right it's my safe space so we had the lights on okay, and we're like creeping up to the bed and I'm like, my ankle is throbbing and I'm creeping up to the bed and I grab my little fleece blanket and I, and I yank it off the covers. I yank it off the bed and there in the bed was curled up a dead queen yellow jacket. I squashed it when I hit it like that. That, that thing right there, but dead. And she had stung me. Oh, I was so mad, I was filled with rage. I wanted to burn the house down. I, really, I, I was like Stacy, we cannot sleep in this house tonight. And she's like, You need to calm down. You need to calm down. I was like, No, we can. And I was like, And I took that thing and I was like, I was like looking at it. I got my pocket knife out. I didn't have it. I had it on my nightstand. Got my pocket knife and I was like, I'm going to decapitate this dead thing. I was like, I'm going to make sure it's dead. All right. And she's like, Just flush it down the toilet. So I take it over there and I like flush it down the toilet. I'm like, ah! I'm like yelling at it as I flush it flushed down the toilet. I was so mad, right? And, uh, and, and what do you think I did? Do you think I just jumped right back in the bed and just used that blanket? And... All right. Time to sleep. No. What do you think I did? Oh, you better believe I, I went, I took that fleece blanket and I hung it over the balcony in our house and I was like shaking it like, Oh, like looking for something to come out. And I was like, I was about to go to war with more yellow jackets. Right. And I was like in the state of like adrenaline surge, just like adrenaline pumping through my veins. And I'm like, Oh, and nothing came out. And I was like, okay. All right. So I like took that blanket and I hung it over the balcony and I went and got a different blanket. <laughs> I still didn't trust the blanket. And then I slept in that one. Now that was four nights ago. What do you think I've been doing every night before I jump in bed? I've been shaking my blankets out. Yeah, I did it last night. I will do it again tonight. I'll do it again the night after that. I will shake my blankets out really good. Well, it doesn't help that this morning we had um, the windows open and one of the side doors open because it was so cool and breezy this morning. And uh, Eli comes and gets me and I'm, I'm um, typing up notes this morning studying Acts 20. And Eli comes in and he's like, Dad, there's another Queen Yellowjack in the house. I'm like, where is he at? I'm going to get him." And I like jump out there and I'm like, yes. And I got my little salt gun that you cock and it has table salt in it. And I was like, Eli, tell me where he was at. And I went over there and we, we just peppered that thing over and over and over. I went like full Sylvester Stallone on that, that yellow jacket. And, and this is our leader. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it's scary, right? Don't give him a taser. Maybe that happened. Yeah, don't give me a taser. Oh, will tase that yellow jacket. Maybe that happened because when you're in a church You're in a place of fellowship, a place of worship. And there's someone standing up and teaching you the word of God. You're trusting them. And you're saying, you know what, you mean best for me. You mean well for me. And even I will take some of my livelihood and I will give it to you so that you can support yourself and your family, all right? And we do that and we put trust in this person to teach the word of God to us and to shepherd us. And we think what harm could come of that? And you're like maybe a new believer and you're excited. And then maybe some, maybe some of you in this room have experienced this where um, one, one Sunday morning or Saturday, the, the pastor pulls up in, in a car that is like like three times nicer than yours, right? Or, or, or is in a house that's about three times the size of your house, right? Or does something with the money that shouldn't ever be done with anyone's money, let alone gifts that were given by the people he's spiritually shepherding. Right? That's totally happened many times. I could stand here for an hour and go through lists of ministries and pastors who have, who have embezzled money or used money to do sinful things. And so what happens in that is we recoil and we get angry and we say, why did you do this to me? I gave you a piece of my livelihood. I work hard day in and day out. I sweat. You know, I come home sore and tired and I have to deal with my boss and my coworkers and I just write you a small part of my check to support you and your family because I trusted you. Maybe you see someone on TV that does that and you sent them a donation. And that that anger is really valid. And what do you do every time you walk into a new church or an assembly? If you even go back to a a church, if you even put yourself under that again, what do you do? You shake it out. (laughs) I don't know if I can trust you. I've been hurt. I've taken a piece of my livelihood and I've given it over to someone and they deeply hurt me who I trusted. I don't know if I can trust you. And I'm not going to say that that... Uh, Look, Gabe Rutledge is going to shake his blanket out tonight. (laughs) I'm not saying that lack of trust is unwarranted. But I'm saying that lack of trust, I hope that you are healed from that. You got what I'm saying? And Paul here, I think is what he is saying is like, look, I am someone you can trust. I am not taking anything from you. I am giving everything to you my entire life. And I hope to be a leader like that. Say, Look, I'm not taking anything from you. I'm giving my everything to you. See, these hands have worked for everything. So go home and shake your blankets out tonight. But no, let's close in prayer. And then we got a couple minutes for a Q&A. Father, I just pray for healing in this room. If there's people here who have hurt, if they have pain from their past, just a trust that has been broken, that you would just reach down and you allow your Holy Spirit to heal that in them that they, they wouldn't turn off discernment, they wouldn't turn off testing things and, 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 and validating things, but that they would again get to a point where they can trust people. And I thank you for people in this room that are trusting and that give of themselves so much. May we all be good stewards of that. I thank you for the life and the ministry of Paul. I look forward to meeting him in the kingdom and the resurrection and sitting at his feet and learning from him. And Asking him a myriad of questions, and may it be soon and in our day. B'shem, uh, Yeshua, Meshachin, Yeshua, our Messiah. I pray, Amen. Amen. Well, guys, you got about five or ten minutes. Let's ask some questions, comments. Uh, Patrick, I saw you got a hand up. So did, the sting, did, cure your arthritis? did the sting cure my arthritis? It did, for the first five minutes. it did for yeah, it did for about five or ten minutes. Now, the thing is, hard to fall back asleep after that. I was like, so my adrenaline was just pumping. All right, any other? Uh... i sinus problems like you. Sinus headaches. Yeah. I got stung by some, And for about a month, almost two months, I had no sinus problems. Interesting, interesting. I don't even swell up. Brenda. So all the things that Paul went through, mm-hmm. and, you know, the beatings and the shipwreck and all that, you wonder why was the purpose of all that? Why did he have to go through all that when he was doing such good work? I think, well, if you go back to Acts 9, Yeshua says, he has to, I'll, I'll let him know how much he has to suffer for my name's sake. I think it's a writing of the scales, a balancing of the scales. In other words, Paul did so much damage to the gospel, so much damage to the way that now he was going to be used as a mighty vessel And now here we are 2,000 years later and 6,000 miles away still talking about this man. But he had to suffer a lot. And um, I don't know. He did cause a lot of suffering. He did cause a lot of suffering. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, Crystal. Is he aware? Like, I don't recall reading anywhere. Like, do you think that he was aware of what was going to come. Like, when he said, I haven't taken anything for this, do you think that he knew that he was going to die and that he was going to suffer I think it's likely. think okay, what well, He says here that he, he um, you know, someone probably told him, hey, uh, Yeshua came to me and told me to tell you that you have to suffer for his name. So the suffering part, he's like, okay, yeah, yeah, I know that I got that ahead of me. Dying, I don't know. Um, but I think he knew that that was probably a likelihood because um, of how many attempts were made on his life. Yeah. I think he knew it was just a matter of time. So a good question. Tanya. Yeah. 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 They do. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, just like the walking through the loss of a loved one, for instance, that's traumatic. That's awful, and I hate that. But it does give you a new perspective if you've never had to walk through that. Of a, being able to really come alongside someone and comfort them in that time of loss. And so that suffering is not pointless. That suffering, and that's the thing, is like in a a secular worldview, suffering is pointless. In a a secular atheistic worldview, suffering has no meaning. But in a biblical worldview, suffering is meaningful, and it has weight to it, and it has a purpose with it. So yeah, it's a really good observation. So Joan, my (laughs) mother-in-law... Oh, Paul has a habit. I didn't answer that. Paul has a habit of traveling with companions. Why? Um, I think a couple different reasons. These are just me speculating. But uh, he's bringing with him a lot of money to Jerusalem. He's been traveling around taking up collections. And so Paul is taking other people with him to hold him accountable. And you know, he's not siphoning off, off the pot. Um, that Everything's on the up and up. Number two, um, uh, for accountability when tempted by sin. You've got to remember that Paul is going into places where um, prostitution is not only legal, but it's something that's kind of like celebrated and done on a regular basis. There's a lot of promiscuity, a lot of uh, perversion going on in the Greco-Roman world. So I think traveling with companions is good and he's, um, he's keeping himself accountable by doing that. But also teaching people and raising up that next generation of leaders to be able to do the same. And two or more witnesses. Yeah, yeah, it, absolutely, absolutely. Any other questions? Good questions so far. Yeah, Carol, sure. What I believe is God used that situation with that yellow jacket. With the yellow jacket, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) To give you confirmation on what you have stood on. Ah, yeah. It was a painful confirmation, though. But somehow that's the only way we learn. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there will be more confirmations in my life, painful ones, (laughs) (laughs) as I mow my lawn. (laughs) 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 Yellow jackets just find me. They hate me but no thank you i think i think yeah it occurred to me i was like ah oh, yeah i think i got to use this as an illustration <sighs> but yeah yeah I crystal just have to say, my husband would jump in front of a bullet for me but when it comes to one of those he will physically throw me on it yeah <laughs> well it's funny because we've lived here for 4 years and i've been getting stung multiple times every year and stacy has gotten to the point now where she's like I think you're overreacting from the stings. I'm like, your day is com- coming, hun, child. Like, your day is coming. She-, she is yet to get stung by yellowjack." I'm like, your day is coming, and I'm about to catch one and like with a pair of tweezers and just like, bink, and just see what happens. I but really? Oh my. Oh interesting. Yeah. Did I see for you and your family? <laughs> yeah, they are. Mom, did you have a question? No, it's completely off up there. Yeah, okay. I'm easy. But Paul said he's the one who authored, I think, that I know him in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his son And I think why did Paul say that? I think it goes back to I want to know him. Mm. Yeah. When, when the voice of Jesus first spoke to him and said, Why are you persecuting me? He's like, Who are you? I mm-hmm. think the intent has always been I want to know him mm-hmm. so deeply. I want to suffer, but I also want to know the exhilaration of the power of God, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, to not only suffer, but to forgive the ones that are causing the suffering and stuff. Yeah, so Paul's, Paul's on a quest to know Messiah even deeper. Yeah. Yeah, Gene. I, I know I'm <clears throat> jumping ahead, and unfortunately, we started listening to Acts, and you just don't stop. You just yeah. Keep going. Yeah. But uh, boy, what had to go through Paul's mind when he was bit by that snake? That's just, that I always, when I read that, it's always so bizarre. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he thought about the fiery snurped, serpents in the wilderness. I don't know. I don't know. And he threw it in the fire. Uh, I saw another hand back here. Let's take a couple more. Yeah, Michael. Really, sorry about that. Kindred spears. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I saw another hand, but I'm not sure. Maybe it went down. Okay, well if you have any questions or comments, I'll just be hanging around here for a little while and then I'm gonna go up to James Oates Park and hang out and play kickball. So let's do the uh, running benediction.